This morning we are continuing the series Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read today's scripture for you. It's in Matthew 6, verse 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God money. Right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. Lord, we thank you that we can open them here and glean from what your word says. And Father, as we do so, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, would reveal to us the areas in our lives that maybe don't align with what your word says. Those areas in our lives where maybe we are laying up treasures where we shouldn't be. Father, we ask that you work through us this morning. Lord, I thank you that as your word go out, goes out, it doesn't return void. That your spirit takes hold of it and works in our hearts. Father, that's what I'm asking you to do this morning. For we know that this is one of those difficult texts, and it challenges us. It reminds us that the earth is not our home. That we await a greater home with you, and that we should be preparing for that home now. So, Lord, as we walk through your word today, speak to us, convict us, encourage us. We ask in Jesus' name. It seemed kind of fitting to me that um, the Lord would, would bring us to focus on this text this morning that's containing this exhortation to his people to, to lay up treasures in heaven on the same Sunday that we, we take some time to reflect on the men and women who have served our country in the armed forces, who have laid down their lives for us, I would say that those who have answered that kind of a call to, to serve their country and to lay down their lives to protect their nation, they understand what it means to, to lay aside the pursuit of pleasure and riches now for the sake of something greater. For the sake of a, a higher calling. And that's kind of the, the heart behind Jesus' scripture this morning, talking about where we lay up treasures. In fact, as I was researching this week uh, about Remembrance Day, uh, I found that the number one reason why people joined the army was that they, they wanted to serve their country. They felt this call, this duty to, to serve their country. And followed behind that very closely was this perspective that. Um, there was something greater than them, that, that life wasn't just about them, that there was something greater beyond themselves, and they wanted to serve that greater need or that greater reason. And so 
these, these reasons for joining the military, they kind of align, as I say, with what Jesus is talking about here with this heart behind where you lay up your treasures, that there's something greater than here and now. And that's what we long for. And that's what we should live for as followers of Christ. And so we're going to unpack that together this morning. But you'll remember from last week, uh, we turned our attention first to chapter six. And, and I had said that um, Jesus' focus, as recorded by Matthew in chapter six, is to emphasize how we are to live as the people of God in light of having God as our Father. This is his focus for the entirety of the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Um, but it can be divided into two different main sections. Jesus focused on two different practical implications for how this plays out in the lives of followers of Christ. In the first part, we looked at from verse 1 to 18 last week, where Jesus focuses on how we live in relation to God in regards to our religious practices that are a part of the Christian life. And he had this focus on giving and prayer and fasting. Though as we concluded last week, you know, though his teaching was focused on these three things because they were the primary forms of righteousness in the Jewish culture, uh, it doesn't mean that his teaching is limited to these three things. That we can bring it into any aspect of the Christian faith, anything that we are called to do. And, and Jesus' principle for his people in, in living out our religious activities is that we have to be aware. That we must be aware of our motivations for why we practice our righteousness. Right? If, we, if we give and we pray and we fast and we do these things in order to be seen by men, in order to be seen by one another then these are not acts of righteousness. They're completely unacceptable to God. They're acts of self-righteousness and self-justification. And, and the Greek there, as we talked about last week, is, is adamant, basically saying whatever rewards you get from men and women when you do that sort of thing, then that's your motivation. That's all that you're going to get. There's absolutely nothing else that is coming from your Father in heaven. We concluded last week by considering the principles in regards to uh, giving in verse 2 to 4. We didn't cover prayer. We didn't cover fasting last week. And what, I, what you need to know is that the principle remains the same, whether we're talking about giving or prayer or fasting. And, and I don't plan to cover those things through this series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. First is that I have covered Jesus' teaching on prayer pretty extensively. I've done it at least a couple times, maybe three times in our church in the past, and I'm sure that I'm going to do it again in the seasons coming. I think probably in the new year, I'll touch on the reality of prayer and the importance of prayer. Uh, and, and the second reason why we're not going to do it now is because I want to focus on our motivations. I want to focus on our heart. What is the heart behind the things we do? Because that's what Jesus is really focused on in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we jumped all the way to verse 19 this morning in the second part of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus begins and teaches a similar principle as we found in verse 1 to 18. Living in light of God as our Father, but now in relation to what Jesus calls the cares of the world. Things like money and food and clothing and property and so on. And so, like he did in verse 1, Regarding our religious practices, Jesus once again begins with a warning to us in verse 19. 
He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to work through this verse kind of laying before us some of the guiding principles for interpreting Jesus' teaching here in these verses as a whole. And I'm going to move on to verse 21 and 22, where Jesus gives a positive declaration toward laying up treasures in heaven. And then we'll finish off by looking at 22 to 24, where he gives these interesting illustrations about the eye and serving God or serving money. And so the first thing I want to note is the Greek translation that's, that's translated in our English Bibles as do not lay up. Uh, the Greek, it carries with it this emphatic present tense that could be more urgently translated as stop. Instead of do not lay up, it's stop laying up treasures. And, and I think this is important. I think this is important to, to, to point out because sometimes we can have this kind of flippant approach to Jesus's commands, right? Like, I'm going to worry about that one later on. I don't need to worry about that right now. And, and Jesus is kind of saying, no, no, as a follower of Christ, it's time for you to stop doing these things. He's very emphatic about it. And I'm, I'm reminded of my, my children uh, and the reaction that they have when I tell them to stop doing something. Right, specifically in this season, the, the child of mine that comes to mind is my second born, Micah. Okay, I know June's in love with him. She thinks he's really cute. He's a he's a bit of a troublemaker, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, in our house, Aria, who's my oldest, she's your, your typical firstborn, right? Very responsible, you know, very mature, beyond her years. Uh, there's not a lot of shenanigans going on with Aria. It, it's very straightforward. But Micah is the typical secondborn. He is louder, right? He is more wild. He is less disciplined. And he is much more willing to test limits than his older sister. And so now when I say to Micah, do not blank, whatever that blank may be, do not do this. His response to me is likely going to be some sort of coy smile, and you can see the gears in his head turning as he's saying, okay, what exactly does God mean by that? Right? Does that mean that, like, I can do it a little bit, but it's okay? Does that mean, like, I can pretend I'm going to touch it, but not actually touch it, not actually touch it? Or, you know, depending on his mood, does that just mean, like, he's just going to go all in? Like, I'm just going for it, and we're just going to see where the chips fall, right? Just hope for the best. Right? This is this is kind of the reaction that I get from Micah. But then if I was to go up to Micah and say, Micah, stop. Well, now he knows that's a little bit more serious. He, he, he understands there's no wiggle room in that. Like when dad says stop, there's going to be consequences regarding anything that happens beyond that stop. And it's likely going to end up in a smack bottom if he keeps going. And there's this clarity. There's this immediacy that we understand when someone says, stop. And I think it captures the heart of what Jesus is trying to get at here. He's like a, he's like a dad looking at his children and he's saying, it's time to stop. It's time to stop living the way you have always lived. It's time to stop living how you were living before I was Lord and Savior of your life. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old has passed away. The new 
has come. We don't live in the old ways anymore. The new has now come. The prophet Isaiah in 43, 18 says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. So we are to break as followers because we need to break the selfish and self-serving patterns of the world. And one of the closest areas that demonstrates whether we have made this break with the world in our lives is what we do with our wealth. What we do with our treasures, whether we continue to store up treasures on earth, whether we continue to keep up for ourselves these trivial frivolities, or whether our attention has wholly turned heavenward. Echoing Jesus' warning here, there's warnings against the love of riches. There's warnings against earthly treasures scattered all over the scriptures, Matthew 19, 21, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. It's a, the, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. Says, well, what, what must I do? And Jesus says to him, you know, if you'd be perfect, go and sell all your possessions. Give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, we talked about how that's not a command for everyone, but some people have to do that. First Timothy 6, 9 to 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. James 5, 2-3, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. That's a pretty picture from James. So the Lord makes it very clear to his people, we are not to love wealth. It is not to rule us. It is not to be a driving motivator in our lives. But when we say that, we also have to be careful. Because the human heart likes extremes. The fallen human heart loves to work in extremes. Because we don't want to go so far as to say these warnings being wealth is evil. That is not what Jesus is saying. We are not to think that we must sell all of our possessions and live destitute in order to please the Lord. It's those kinds of extreme ascetic responses throughout the history of the Christian faith that, that people have attempted, which caused them to fall into error. So I, I assure you, whether you are rich or whether you are poor, the love of money can be a disease that is very real in your heart either way. In all of these scriptures, it is not about whether you have money or whether you don't. It is a warning not to love money itself. It is a warning not to hoard, not to, to squander, not to store up from a sinful heart. The key word in Jesus' teaching in verse 19 is yourself. That's the key word in verse 19, yourself. It hits the point of his teaching. It is a call that we are to be unselfish with what we have. Do not lay up for yourself treasures. So a reasonable conclusion we can make from this is that it is good and it is right 
to do certain things, like make provision from, from the future. Jesus isn't saying don't, don't plan for the future. It's good and right to make provision for the future. What we are not to do is we are not to hoard for the future like the fool in Luke 12, right, who built bigger barns just to keep saving his stuff and saving and saving and saving. At some point, your saving becomes hoarding. And he just kept saving in order to live a carefree, enjoyable life, not having to worry about anything. And then what happened? That very night, he died. And Jesus says, this sort of thinking is foolish. He was a man who lived for and trusted the wrong things. He was trusting in his wealth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It was interesting because the enemies of the treasures that we are inclined to lay up, which Jesus alludes to, points to the breadth or, or the broadness of the things that can cause a human heart to stumble in this area. It's pretty broad when you think about it, right? The first enemy that he, he warns against is moths. So, so that brings to mind things as, such as clothing, right? Warning up a ton of clothing or, or linens, right? Anything that can be destroyed by moths. And then he goes on to worry about lust, or sorry, rust. Lust is a few weeks ago we talked about that. Rust, right, which alludes to vehicles, right, toys, gadgets, all those things that can rust. But the interesting thing about this translation is that the Greek word in the original, it actually refers to words. And they just translated it rust for, for more modern audiences so we can get our minds around it. But the original refers to words. And so this may be better viewed as anything that can decay or spoil, whether it be from rust, whether it be the decay of food that leads to worms and maggots. It's anything that's corrupting. And that's basically everything in a sense, one way or another. And then lastly, Jesus warns of thieves. And obviously, he's pointing out the things of value that can be taken from our home. And maybe even you could go as far as to say, maybe it's a broader scale beyond that to say anything that can be stolen from us, whether it be our health, whether it be our jobs, anything that can be possibly taken. So his, his warning against treasures that we are maybe inclined to lay up is quite broad. It's quite broad in what he's referring to. There, there's much that can snare a human heart on earth. As Timothy Keller says, he says, the human heart is an idol factory. It will lay hold of whatever it can if it believes under the false assumption that it will bring pleasure and it will bring security because the heart is an idol factory. And so we as followers of Christ must go forth in this world very, very carefully and very aware of our motivations. So now that we've kind of laid down some guidelines for what Jesus is and isn't meaning in these verses and, and that the broad inclusion that he has regarding the treasures that he's alluding to, let's, let's move on beyond verse 19 and this negative one. Let's look at the flip side, that the positive exhortation in verse 20 and the conclusion that Jesus gives in verse 21. He says, but, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth or rust or, or thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So from, from verse 19 and verse 20, we can confidently conclude something which I think is really important. 
And it is this, that the pursuit of treasure is not what Jesus is condemning. He's not condemning the pursuit of treasure. He is condemning the type of treasure that we are pursuing. And this is a really, really important distinction to make. Because we so often have this, this false approach of the Christian life as though it's this call to this solemn self-denial and self-sacrifice. And while it certainly is about those things, we are called to self-denial, we are called to self-sacrifice, we are not called to these things as a means of just living this miserable, pleasureless life. Right? We are not called to self-denial or self-sacrifice in regards to the fact that we don't pursue joy or we don't pursue pleasure, that is not Jesus' aim. See, one of the main arguments that I hear from non-Christians against Christianity is that God removes all the fun from life. And this is one of the arguments that you hear for not being a Christian. I don't want to be a Christian because there's so many rules. There's so many do-nots and do's and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's not fun. It doesn't sound fun. And honestly, sometimes Christians, we don't help this perspective in the way that we present our faith as one of somber self-denial, you know, as though there's no joy, no pleasure, because we have to give things up. But the reality is, as followers of Christ, self-denial and, 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 uh, and re removing things from our lives and giving things up is only part of the story. We need to present the whole so what's the whole story? Well, the conclusion from Scripture is not that we shouldn't pursue joy. The conclusion from Scripture is not that we shouldn't pursue pleasure. It's that we so often wrongly misinterpret and misunderstand what leads to our joy, what leads to our pleasure. Jesus does not say, deny yourself that you, so you may walk through life completely miserable. We are to deny ourselves so that we may walk through life pursuing our greatest joy and our greatest pleasure. Not ignoring the need for it. That would go against the way God created us. And so when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, it's because beyond that decision to do so is greater joy and greater pleasure than whatever earthly pleasure you could possibly want to pursue. And that's the whole story of Christianity. It's like I said last week, the week before, we'll come, to, we'll come to heaven and we'll realize I didn't actually give up anything. I gained everything. That's the reality of our faith. We are to deny ourselves. We are to give things up because beyond those things is greater joy and greater pleasure. And so we are people who pursue joy and pursue pleasure. Like I said last week, C.S. Lewis's quote, right? We're like the child just playing in mud pies. Then there's this offer at the holiday of the sea because we can't understand, we can't fathom what that could mean. We can't imagine that denying ourselves actually leads to greater joy in our lives, but it does. And the principle is the same regarding our treasure. We're not called to deny earthly treasure and therefore be miserable. The call is to deny earthly treasure for something so much greater, so much more lasting, and therefore walk in our greatest joy in the pursuit of it. That's what we're We need to lift our eyes up. We need to see beyond earthly things. Lift our eyes and see all that God has for us. 
Right? If we could just truly get into our hearts that, that through the denial of self is where greater joy and lasting joy lies, we would be so different as followers of Christ. If we could just get through to ourselves that not laying up treasures here, but laying up treasures in heaven is where ultimate joy lies, we would be so much more free. We'd be so much more productive. We'd be so much less struggling with sin and hang-ups and habits because we'll, we'll have put off the pursuit of earthly things that leads to those things and binds us up. Jesus says, lay up for yourself treasures of heaven where nothing can destroy it. And, and as we've gone through the the Sermon on the Mount, last few weeks. I keep going back to First Peter because a lot of you are in First Peter. If you're in the men's group on Tuesday or women's group on Tuesday, okay. So, in the context of First Peter, we know what this means, right? Peter says in verse four and five, we have this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, is being kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? We got to hold that before our minds. All the time, you have this treasure in heaven that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, and is being kept for you by God. And you, Christian, are being guarded for it through faith. Now that is glorious. And when we can hold on to that, when we can see that clearly, earthly treasures fall away. They're nothing when we pursue great joy. So what does laying up treasures in heaven look like? That's a good question to ask. What does it mean? We're not to lay them up here, but there. How do we do that? I think it refers to all the things that we do on earth that have eternal significance. And there's so much that we could include in that. It's everything we've talked about so far on the, in the Sermon on the Mount series. It's walking in the Beatitudes. When you walk in the Beatitudes, you're laying up treasure in heaven. When you let your light shine, you're laying up treasure in heaven. When you love your enemies, you're laying up treasure in heaven. When you keep your word, when you don't retaliate, when you give and you pray and you fast, when you teach your kids, honestly, like the most mundane and seemingly just useless moments that we give to the Lord is laying up treasure in heaven. It's choosing something eternal over something temporal. It's choosing things like going to Bible study when you would rather watch Netflix. Knowing that it isn't just for you, it isn't just about you, it's about those who are there with you. It's not having a mindset, what can I get from it, but rather maybe I have something to say that somebody else needs to hear. That's laying up treasure in heaven. It's what Jesus speaks about in Matthew 25, 35 to 40. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick? or in prison and visit you, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's laying up treasure in heaven. Some of you laid up treasures in heaven in this past couple months. When you denied yourself, and you helped a woman and her daughter who were on the street that our church had assisted. That's not why you did it, but you're still laying up treasures in heaven. 
by responding to that need of a stranger and denying yourself. And Jesus says to us, the more we lay up treasures in a place, whether it be on earth or in heaven, that's where your heart's going to be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be When you think about that, that's a sobering, that's a striking reality that we have to wrestle with. The heart in scripture is the center of the person, is the center of our being. It is, is where everything flows from, whether it be our emotions, our will, our desires, everything. And Jesus is saying our most cherished treasure, whatever is in our heart most deeply determines our decisions, determines our direction. We have to take this as a stark warning because we're going to see in just a few minutes in verse 24 that Jesus says we can't be divided. You can't possibly be divided as a Christian. He's not talking about a divided heart here. He's talking about whether there's things that you're laying up in heaven or on earth. You can't do both. So we have to be really aware. There's there's sin that clings closely and tries to pull us off a path sometimes, but ultimately our affections, the allegiance of our heart is either going to be earthward or heavenward. There's no in-between. And it determines our direction. And ultimately, it determines our eternal destination. John Calvin, he says this, he says, If honor is rated as highest in your life, then ambition must take complete charge of a man. Notice he didn't say partial charge, complete. If honor is everything to you, then your ambition will take complete charge. If money is everything to you, then greed will take over your kingdom. If earthly pleasure is everything to you, then man will certainly degenerate into sheer self-indulgence. Colossians 3, 1 to 2 describes a better way Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So after speaking plainly, Jesus uses a couple of metaphors to illustrate his point further. First, he speaks of our eyes. He says, the eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In this metaphor, what Jesus is doing is he's making the eye equivalent to the heart. He points out what we all plainly know, that the eye brings light into the body. Right? The eye is what captures light. What we see is really a result of our eyes working with the light around us. And so he says, if it is healthy, meaning if it's focused on the right things, like our heart on eternal things, then our body is full of light. When you focus on what is good, it brings light into your whole body. But if your eye is bad, like your heart, like if the heart is corrupted, 
If you're focused on earthly things, then your whole body is full of darkness. And then comes the point that should make us pause and reflect as followers of Christ. And he says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? That's a scary line from Jesus. What does he mean there? He means that we can be deceived. Because we can be deceived and not realize that our eyes are bad. That we can be walking out our Christian faith thinking we are walking in the light. But really, the light that we perceive we have is truly darkness. And Jesus says, when you are deceived in this way, the darkness in you is very great. What does he mean? I think it relates back to what the Bible talks about in other parts, such as 1 Timothy 4, where it talks about the dangers of a seared conscience. When a conscience is seared, it doesn't work properly. It, it becomes dull. It doesn't recognize the sense. It doesn't recognize right. It doesn't recognize wrong. It becomes desensitized to these things. And this is a, a grave place to be because it, it leads to endorsing what is wrong and possibly denying what is actually right. And I think what Jesus is alluding to here is, is very similar to the concept of a seared conscience. It's a degree of lostness or brokenness in an individual when they believe that the treasure they are laying up is good and right, when in fact it is sinful and they can't see it or they refuse to acknowledge it. I think an example would be the pursuit of money. Right? One might believe I'm pursuing money to support my family, which is a God-honoring thing. But in the pursuit of it, if you cheat God, not tithing to God, or you cheat government by hiding income and not claiming it, which is hoarding more for yourself, and you don't see the wrong in this, then Jesus would say, that light you think you're walking in, that good thing that you think you're doing is darkness and you need to repent. This metaphor of the eye and the difference between light and dark, which in biblical terms can also be considered the difference between sight and blindness, can, can point back to, the, to, to illustrate Jesus' aim in verse 19 to 21. It can point, point back to say that the selfishness blinds a person to the true state of self. And when you're selfish, you can't actually understand and comprehend yourself properly. And it can also point forward to verse 24 to say that the man or woman who tries to serve both God and money is blind. You try and serve God and you try and serve money, you're blind. You're walking in darkness because they have a divided interest. God and money can never be pursued together. In the pursuit of one, you will deny the other. It is impossible to split the heart. It has to be God or money. It cannot be both. And Jesus ends by saying this very thing himself. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Ultimately, what this comes down to, ultimately the choice between where we lay up treasure 
is a choice between two masters. Are we going to serve God? Or are we going to serve money? The Greek infers this idea of confidence. So maybe a better question is, what do you place your confidence in? You know, another word for confidence in Scripture is faith. That's how Hebrews describes it. Do you have faith in God? Or do you have faith in money? Because you cannot have faith in both. E.A. Carson, he describes it this way. He says, both God and money here are portrayed as slave owners. You cannot serve two owners. Either God is served with single-eyed devotion, or he is not served at all. Attempts at divided loyalty betray not partial commitment to discipleship, but deep-seated commitment to idolatry. What Carson is saying there is you, you cannot, exactly Jesus, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot be half and half. You cannot be kind of in and kind of out. When you try and do both, all it shows is there's deep idolatry in your heart. You can't partially commit. It's all or nothing. Jesus gives a great warning to the man or woman who would try to serve him. Revelation 3.16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of the way. That's the warning that he gives to those who would try to serve both. Leave me with a, an illustration this morning that's often used in older commentaries, but there's a story that's often used about two calves that were born. And when they were born, there was a white calf and there was a red calf. And the man said to his wife, one of these calves is God and one of them is ours. I feel like the Lord wants me to devote one to him and the other one will be ours. And so his wife asked him, okay, well, which one is God's and which one is ours? He said, well, I'll decide it. I'll let them grow up and, no, we'll, we'll decide later. Then what happens? One of the calves dies. The man walks into the house and says to his wife, Honey, God's calf died. It's a silly illustration, but isn't it a reality of the human heart we rest in? I'm going to give something to God, and I'm going to keep some for myself. And then when I inflict the loss, whose portion? It's denied first. God's? Mine. Now, to live this out, we have to have the right view of ourselves. As I said at the beginning, we're soldiers. This isn't our home. That we have a greater hope waiting for us in heaven. We get that deep in our hearts. Our deepest desire will be to lay up treasures for the other people. I'll understand that we're, we're simply passing through. And we have a mission of the people. But this isn't what's in the Heavenly Father, 
is one of those teachings for you that is so important. Because for a lot of us in, in our context, compared to others in the world, we have a lot. We are wealthy compared to most. And Lord, this is something that concerns our hearts. We know that you do not condemn wealth. It's not about that. It's about our motivation. It's about whether we love money. Whether we pursue money for the sake of having money. For the sake of building our own little kingdom. And I think it would be foolish for us to leave here today and think that we don't struggle with this even in a little way. I think, Lord, that if we're honest with ourselves, all of us struggle with this in some way or another. Lord, for us, may it be that, that sin that clings close, may we come before you with that. Lord, may you be the pursuit of our life. May you be our highest joy our highest pleasure. Father, I ask that through the power of your spirit, you would teach us deep in our hearts, that it would take hold, that when we deny ourselves and we answer that call from Jesus, there is a greater joy and a greater pleasure given to That you haven't called us to some solemn life. You called us to a joy-filled life. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we, for the first time in our lives, actually know what it is to pursue joy. We know for the first time what true joy actually is. Everything before that is shadows. And so, Lord, may the old ways not hang to us. May we put them off for the sake of the new things, the greater things. May it be evident in our lives. May it be evident in our families. Lord, may be evident in this church, in your church. Thank you, Lord, for the life that you have called us to. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that goes with us. Thank you that when we confess our sin, you are faithful to me. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Help us to live for you, Lord. 